and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. I am your host on Helpful Human Statue, Tyler Hannon, and with me is literal emotional puddle, Kayla St. Hi. How's it going, Kayla? Fantastic. All right. This is the first episode of Let the Right Films In, where we pick a movie out of the IMDb Top 250 and talk about it. Uh, first, though, we're going to talk a bit about the things we've watched recently before getting into the review, and we'll also have some uh, bits of trivia about the movie and also different fun stats about... The IMDb 250. But first, Kayla, what have you watched recently? Well, interestingly enough, uh, last week I went with a friend to see the movie The Age of Adeline in theaters, which I probably would not have picked to go see any other time in my entire life. But um, it wasn't bad. It suffered from some like over-narration issues. And the guy that they had doing the voiceover was like, I don't know, he had a voice that was really like, and so Adeline Bowman. <laughs> like, I didn't really have a southern accent, but that was just kind of, it just like felt, I don't know. Kayla, your impressions are my favorite <laughs> thing about you. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. It was a decent movie, but I really feel like they were just like, uh, Blake Lively is the most beautiful person on earth, so we're just going to turn some cameras on, and whatever we write will be fine, because no one will be paying attention to that anyway. And uh, I guess, let's see, and then better movie that I watched last uh, last night, I finally, after like dying to see this for months and months and months, watched A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Took and you long enough. I t- okay. <laughs> <laughs> I only told you to watch it approximately I wanted 12 to, years ago. <laughs> I wanted to watch it before it came out, but I just, I mean, okay, that's a lie. I have had time. I just watched other things instead. But anyway, it was really good, and I really enjoyed the cinematography, and um, the the soundtrack was really good too, and just stuff like that. Also, the closing shot with the girl and the boy and the cat is now my favorite picture that's ever existed. It's not <laughs> even a spoiler. Well done. I know. What can I? I, I do my best. And you've been watching Sensate as well. Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. This is gonna be my plug for the show. If you have not watched Sensate on Netflix yet, you need to do that immediately because it is amazing and diverse and super gay and pretty much anything you could ever want out of a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in love with literally every person that's on it. To the Wachowskis and Netflix, we uh, to contact us about any sponsorship opportunities, uh, please email us now. Uh, I have also watched a few things, not a lot of things, but I went to see Mad Max Fury Road for the third time. In theaters, the last time it was in theaters around us for the foreseeable future, it is still incredible. It Sober was this time, too. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> but it was incredible. Uh, it's just, uh, I mean, everybody on the internet has already freaked out about how good that movie is. But it is worthy of all the freaking out because that movie is kind of incredible. It's true. I also watched Ant-Man, which has been out for, like, two days at this point, maybe. And I just want to say, Ant-Man is really, really fun, and is a lot better than both Thor movies, as much as we all love... Okay. As much as we all love Chris Hemsworth, and mostly Loki, because everybody fucking loves Loki. I'm so pretty sure... I don't really get that, to be honest. Tom Hiddleston, yes. Loki, not so much. Like, because he's a trickster? Pop, but I don't know. <laughs> Ant Man is so much more fun and interesting than both Thor movies, and it's really not close. Uh, I do not know how I'd rank it against the other movies yet, but it is a lot of fun. 
it's nice because it's a standalone away from the Marvel Universe and all that that entails. You do have a crossover, like there is a bit of a crossover because it is probably contractually obligated that at least five minutes of screen time go to another Avenger of some kind. (laughs) But it was really fun. Paul Rudd is just the most charming human being on this planet and the perfect person to play Scott Lang. And also a fine addition to Marvel's collection of snarky hero white boys. Good, love it. And this time... He's not named Chris. <laughs> Which is really a flaw. They really should have just tried to find another person named Chris. They don't have Chris Pine yet. Consistency. Yeah. Oh. He's right there waiting for that. I feel like at this point, since everybody else in Hollywood has been added to the cast of Captain America Civil War, it's probably coming. There's a good chance. I mean, they added Idris Elba to the Star Trek universe, so that means that Marvel gets one now, too. Yeah, they have to trade. Star Trek Marvel. <laughs> Uh, what else did I watch? I watched this movie Parallels on Netflix, was which was more interesting. It had an interesting concept. So there's this building mm-hmm. in the middle of this like random building, and every 36 hours it takes you to another planet Earth, a multiverse kind of thing. It was originally conceived as a TV series, but the they reworked it as a movie that doesn't totally make sense anymore because it was originally supposed to be a TV series, so you have things that kind of just drop off. I think I saw this but when I was browsing last night. Actually. Constance Wu is in it. Of um, Oh, man, I have forgotten the show. Fresh Off the Boat. Oh, okay. She's like supposed to be one of the best parts of Fresh Off the Boat. I keep meaning to and watch And she's that. like the best part of this movie because everybody else is just bland white person as told by this bland white person. <laughs> um, but I was kind of bummed it didn't become a series because it actually was pretty interesting and pretty well done. But now it's just a curiosity on Netflix that will now once again disappear into the ether of the recommended You section. know, interestingly enough, another thing that I noticed randomly on Netflix last night, Jeanette McCurdy from iCarly is in some sort of new TV show on Netflix that's like... a town is like everybody over the age of 22 is wiped out by a disease and then the rest of them are quarantined or something it sounds like a cw show I, yeah i just like saw it and i was like okay i guess that's a thing that sounds exactly <laughs> like a cw show because then it's like now we have a reason to just have young and pretty people because <laughs> we killed off all the old ugly ones <laughs> right it's the best way to do it really I can't. What, uh, other than that, I've just been watching The Twilight Zone because I guess there are, instead of watching any of the new TV shows, I'm just, yeah, I just feel like watching The Twilight Zone. Well, that's like how I rewatch Parks and Rec like every three weeks. That's different. So. That's Parks. Oh, The Twilight's really good. I mean, it is a lifestyle, oh, but. Jesus. It is a lifestyle. <laughs> I just had a band. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I think it's Shana Falana, but it could be Shana Falana for all. Okay. But they're pretty rad, and they were just tweeting me yesterday, sick brag, band with 500 followers, about, uh, <laughs> we have a real life park, so we, like, we consider our town uh, Pawnee, and then Riverbank is Wilton, those jerks over there. Like, That's pretty neat. I wish That's we had how, that I here. feel like if we're going with like Michigan parallels, I would say probably like... Either Bay City or Saginaw would be Pawnee, and then Midland is Eagleton. Oh, God, Midland is Eagleton. I don't um, even know what the Pawnee is, but Midland is fucking for, Eagleton. Yeah, so for those of you who are aware of some, uh, I guess, just a little bit of background on that, Midland is where Dow Chemical is. What? And no, the local references, they get them. 
<laughs> I totally get that. I mean, probably 90% of our followers are going to be people that live in Michigan, but just no, in case. Just, like that. just in How case. Dare you? For my friend Eva from California who's listening, Midland is where Dow Chemical is, and Dow Chemical pretty much owns everybody's lives. So even mine, and only because I lived there for a few years. That's all it took. Like, they have a really nice library, though. I don't know how they got a birth certificate, but <laughs> it's like a night veil situation. But yeah, that's what we've been watching this week, and now we're gonna get into a movie, the very first movie of the two fifty we watched. Yes. And we decided, you know, we're, we're gonna we're gonna start pretty small, and so we're like, you know what? Let's just take like the biggest film in French history and like. We'll just start with that, because who cares? <laughs> we are covering, oh, and not only is it the biggest film in French history, it is also the follow-up movie from the highly acclaimed director of Alien Resurrection. Wait, is that actually the biggest film in French history? Yeah, it's one of the big, or, I need to double check that. It is, <laughs> man, you ruined my intro. I'm sorry, I was just I was going to talk about Alien Resurrection, it's very important. Okay, the okay. fourth film of the Alien franchise, directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunette. The winner on a writer. <laughs> yeah, Sigourney Weaver chose to be in it. What is, what is, what are you doing? Sigourney, no, just bad. But we're talking about Amelie. <laughs> not Alien Resurrection. Not Alien Resurrection. Surprisingly, Although, not on the top 250. <laughs> maybe, maybe, it might climb up there, you know? It's in the sixes. We could, oh, it's going to take some time. We need to recruit. All right, after this, everybody go vote for Alien Resurrection so that it can be in the top 250. Thank you. Know, you. If it makes it to 250, we are absolutely doing an episode Because <laughs> I want to know what the hell is going it's on It's up there. to you guys now. But, yeah, Amelie, directed by, I already probably butchered his name. But it was directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunette. Probably, it's probably pronounced Jeunet. Like no, damn it. You are definitely right. You're I definitely right. I took two semesters of French at listen, community college. Listen, I, first of all, we should have checked that beforehand. But all things aside. First episode. Listen, I taught myself French on Duolingo for like a month and a half before I forgot that that was a thing on my phone that I was trying to do. I think I have that app on my phone and I've literally never used it. It's a pretty great app. I Although just I am should... a piece of trash that forgot that I should learn other languages. But yeah, Amelie. Vous au moins vous risquez pas d'être un légume puisque même un artichaut a du cœur. Released in 2001, uh, doing some doing the research into it as we do like to be thoroughly researched and include a lot of background information on this podcast. Uh, the French lost their goddamn minds about this movie. Apparently, they <laughs> and just so did everybody else. Really, <laughs> true, true. It is the number. So it is definitely the sixth highest grossing foreign movie in America. Behind Crouch, Attacker, and Dragon, Life is Beautiful, Hero, Instructions Not Included, and Pan's Labyrinth. Then right there in not sixth place. a bad list. <laughs> not bad at all. And then Amelie, the highest grossing French film. And then it did make, according to Box Office Mojo, um, $140 million 
um, internationally, internationally to America, because that's how we judge things. It's like, <laughs> there's America, and then there's not America, even if it, the movie came from not America. But yeah, made $140 million. It sold seven and a half million tickets in France. I was doing some research. It didn't go to Cannes. It wasn't the pick for Cannes, because the jury, and the jury had to make an excuse, because it was such a big deal. They were like, oh, we only saw a version that didn't have music or anything, so like there was nothing we could do. And people were like, yeah, you old fogies. Isn't well, I can't remember what movie it was off the top of my head, but there was definitely a movie at Cannes that wasn't finished that they were just like, but it's the best thing ever, so we're totally gonna let it be in this. That, I mean, that is a Cannes thing. Let's be real. <laughs> it was real. It, I mean, it might have been true, but it was also just like, Jesus, guys, we gotta cover ourselves. Yeah. People are losing their minds, and we don't have it. <laughs> and we're in France. This is really bad for us. Actually, you know what? We're kind. Oh wait, it is Cannes, right? As far as I know, yeah. Pretty sure it's Cannes. We can, we're probably going to be fine, actually, so we'll be all right. Although, another fun bit of trivia from that. The uh, the second lead, uh, me, hold up, let me look it up. Uh, so the guy playing Nino, Matthew Kasovitz, he was on the jury for Cam that year. And he was like, yo, if, if uh, in that voice too, <laughs> if only would have been in a can, it would have won the Palm d'Or easy. I mean. Y'all fucked up. Definitely, like, I, I, okay, if you've never seen Amelie, like, let's I, get into it. Yeah, I really, this movie made my heart happy. It's like, okay, I think I first saw this movie back when I was in high school because the guy I dated in high school, we went through a phase where we were trying to watch like oh notable God, personal stories. <laughs> we were trying to watch all of like the notable foreign films, and obviously, Amelie is on the list. And I don't, like, aside from, like, The Brothers Bloom, I don't think a movie has ever made me happier than Amelie. <laughs> and I discovered, and again, in my extensive research for this movie that was conducted on the truck car right here. <laughs> I actually researched more than that. But that was something I saw in the car right here. It's apparently, it is Brian Fuller's favorite movie. And that it heavily influenced Pushing Daisies, which, for those of you who don't know Kayla... It all makes sense. It all makes sense. <laughs> because she keeps telling me to, her the greatest tragedy in her life is the cancellation of Pushing I, Daisies. I, I'm not over it. I'm still not over still it. Still not over it. I never saw Pushing Daisies, but it certainly seemed to have the kind of whimsy that is present anomaly, which is whimsy is all get out. But it's so well done. It does seem like the French version of like our kind of um, indie rom-com whimsy movies, except... It's it's got, it's got, it's, I mean, it's more well done than most of them. True. It's got that French flavor. It does, well, and I think a lot of it has to do with, like, the colors and the score. Like, uh, I want to, I think I'm pronouncing the name right, Jan Tiersen. Yeah. Uh, did the score, and it's, on, like, I, like, if I'm ever feeling sad, like, I'll just listen to that until I feel better. And I think that the, that has a lot to do with, like, how good the movie feels. Um... Yeah, if I forgot I, how to talk. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I mean, just you so are overcome you, with emotion. You are noted for how little you talk. You know, it's just the two of us. We just—it's really weird. We start a podcast. So we have such a hard time quiet. talking, but it is a really just magical movie, uh, full of elements of. I think most of it's kind of like in her imagination when she literally bursts into a puddle of emotion or water, like a. That I, like, I feel like most of that stuff is just like a visual expression of her inner kind of monologue going on, but it does have these moments of magical realism that are 
It's really fun. Well, and I think a lot of the movie is more, like, for instance, like, Nino and Amelie never actually speak to each other except for, and, like, no, like, Amelie talks at Nino a couple of times, Mm -hmm. but that's it. So, so much of the movie is done through, like, expression and just, like, I don't know, just, it's all small moments, I guess, is the best way that I would find to describe it, because, like, there's so many little things in that movie that, like, if I just saw it on, like, if I just saw a scene like that on its own, I probably wouldn't think much of it. But for instance, like, um, the, the just, like, what happens in the movie is that Amelie decides to become, like, a do-gooder based on returning, like, a box of childhood trinkets that she found in her apartment to the man that lived there when he was a kid. And so right after this happens, she is walking through the streets and sees a blind man, like, trying to cross the street. And so she, like, grabs him by the arm and takes him through the city and describes all of the things to him. And And it's this really cinematic sequence. It's, like, high pace, and they're, like, it's the cameras, like, shooting all over the place. Yeah, and that's another thing, like, throughout the movie, they use, in my notes, I described it as brisk cinematography, where, like, they're flashing through things, and they're just, like, throwing colors and sounds and lights and stuff at you but like just like it's like really busy but also really simple at the same time and like that moment particularly with the blind man like I've seen this movie probably 15 20 times at this point and it always makes me cry and this was my first time and I didn't quite cry but it was very beautiful and I think that's part of why the whimsy which is such like a derided term and rightfully so in a lot of cases um, why it works in this movie is I feel like all the whimsy kind of serves a certain purpose besides the general um, uh, like uh, aura the general mm, tenor of the movie it all serves like the uh, like the voicing the different characters likes serves to kind of give you a picture of their character in a way besides general exposition although yeah. it is by definition, that narration is exposition. But it's, it's really it's a really easy way to characterize people without having to spend a lot of time on it. And yeah. like I don't think that that would work in most movies, which is the same way I feel about like narration. Yeah. Like I normally don't like a lot of voiceover narration, which was my issue, like I said, with the Age of Adeline. Um, but in this movie, I, I I don't know exactly what it is, but it works. Yeah. And I don't know maybe if it's because it's in French, and so maybe it's just not this jarring because mm-hmm. you just kind of like are listening to a language you don't understand the whole time, but. I think that the narration and the cinematography work really well together to make it like this full-bodied experience. Well, that's the thing. This movie does a whole lot of things that could easily come off as like trying to do too much and throwing it all together into this weird mix. But they did a nice job of making all those different weird parts work together into this like this really emotion, this really just kind of cute working class like it's weirdly working class too for how like uh light and feathery it is it's all it's all about like these young people just like living on their own and although another thing the drugstore she works at is a real store yeah i did know that actually which is odd because apparently in europe they have combination cafes and bars and drugstores which honestly, we could bring that here. I'd be okay with that. that. That would be sweet. What <laughs> other things can we combine together into like? I'm thinking like movie theater, massage parlor. Um, to, <laughs> I, I didn't put. I didn't think of any of these beforehand. But we need to combine more businesses. <laughs> uh, turn everything into a combination coffee shop. Just like have coffee there. What's, yeah. I mean, well, that's not? like the 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 main art in Royal Oak is a coffee shop slash movie theater, and there's also it's also another local reference for all of our internet. <laughs> yeah, listeners. I can't remember when the theater that I went to see Whiplash in was like an actual like 
coffee shop that just happened to be attached to this like art movie theater and I can't remember the name I, we just like randomly drove there Chris is much my fiance Chris is much better at directions and things than I am so I was just kind of along for the ride but um, anyway <laughs> <Just hanging> out. <laughs> so but back to the point um, what I think is that with Amelie it's just like a really emotionally satisfying experience because like so many like acclaimed movies like foreign or not are just like really like dark and like serious and depressing and so it's kind of nice to remember that you can make a movie that's just like this like outright beautiful like fairy tale world and like I don't know and like you would think like normally with stuff like that it's reserved for like children's stories or like family friendly but like I wouldn't say that Amelie is family friendly because it has this like current of playful irreverence going on like right in the beginning of the movie she asks how many couples in France you think are having an orgasm right now and like and then we watch them orgasm yes and in quick succession <laughs> Nino works in a sex shop and because it's France and you know what sex is just a thing that people do which is not a bad I mean so maybe in France it's a family friendly movie I don't really know <laughs> it was know. kind of <laughs> <laughs> I mean they're just very open you know what they're probably more healthy for it but yeah. it was kind of refreshing just because that's something we would not get in most American movies. Or if we did, it wouldn't be this fun and playful thing. Well, no. Female orgasm in American movies is like the biggest no ever. You may remember Blue Valentine getting an NC-17 rating because Michelle Williams enjoys herself having sex in the movie. Listen, the only thing that should be rated NC-17 is the emotional terrorism. In movie, so. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I... This is another tangent, but we once got a coworker of ours to uh, she watched Blue Valentine thinking because I put it in my two like my favorite section think because it said it's a love story. Oh yeah, just and as she a... didn't ne she never forgave me for that. <laughs> never forgave. Nor me. should she. But uh, just as a quick reference, Tyler and I both do work at a video store that shall remain unnamed for purposes of us not getting and fired. Yes, for the love of God, they do still exist. And yes, we Stop do rent. Asking us that. <laughs> yes, and we do rent form. So there we go. We've covered all we the do, questions that you might form. have. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so we each have like an employee pick section. But just go to the internet. Don't come ask us for porn. Like just. It's really go awkward. To the it is so awkward. I wish I could say that I wasn't like desensitized to renting porn to creepy old men, but. That's the world that we live in right now. Yeah, when you do it every day. It's <laughs> okay, so back on point. Let me go to my notes here <laughs> before we get too into that. Back um, to orgasms, okay. Yes. I, okay, so one thing I want to bring up, another, like, I feel like Amelie, it has an overall story, but for the most part, it's just, like, these small vignettes of, like, fun things that Amelie does to try and bring joy to other people's lives. Because at its heart, like, that's really what the movie is about. It's about, like, deciding to be a good person and also deciding to take that joy that you're bringing to others and to apply it to your own life. And that was Kayla's phone, which she phone. told me she put on silent. That was she my alarm for... God. That was my alarm for my medicine, which I just realized that I left at home, so that's good. Oh, you're <laughs> bad at being a bill. <laughs> anyway, um... What was I saying? This is going to be a fun edit. Sorry in advance, Kyle or Tyler, whoever's doing that. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so it's about taking that like joy that you bring to others' lives and realizing that you also need to apply that to your own life. Like you, It's good to treat others well, but if you don't treat yourself well, then you're going to end up... I want to say that they actually cover this movie because you'll become like a sad shell of a person or something like that. And there's a specific line in there. Um, well, that's kind of what that... Uh older man is doing that the, uh, the glass man yeah, yeah the glass man yes um, well because there's actually a, a line in there that I've always kind of related to he goes off 
So whenever Emily and the glassman are talking to each other, they don't actually talk to each other about themselves. Um, the glassman replicates a painting every year, and there's a girl in the painting who's holding a glass of wine uh, that he like feels that he can never quite capture because, um, and I guess he sees Amelie in this girl or that she's similar, and um, he talks about how. Um, you mean she would rather imagine herself relating to an absent person than build relationships with those around her? Thank you. Yes, that's exactly. And I remember, especially a couple of years ago, I was dating a guy that lived in New Jersey, and I just remember I watched this movie. I think I was sick or something, and I watched this movie, and I just was like, "Oh man," because <laughs> like so many of like my personal relationships and my friends, like they're with people from the internet, they're people that live far away. And so in a way, I don't think it's necessarily bad to relate to like these absent friends, these absent people, and to try and like focus your energy on helping them fix their messy lives. But you also have to turn that inside and fix your own messy life and maybe try to interact with real human beings around you sometimes because you can't just live like that solitary existence. I do think it's cool too, related, going back to how Amelie is the kind of the, uh, her journey in this movie is doing all these nice things for other people and then eventually finally doing the right, nice thing for herself. I, I think that's like something like the log line of this movie. To yeah. Sell and it's about so much more than that, but at the basic plot structure, structure that's what it's about. And that's kind of cool because it's. In 2015, 14 years later, we have seen many commercials where it's like, oh, you do that, uh, it's like that golden rule, you do something nice for someone, and then, oh, that's going to get them to do something nice for another person, and then it'll keep on going on this line, and I can't remember exactly what that principle is or where that stems from, but it's this basic idea of you do something right, (laughs) paying it forward, yeah. So this movie is basically about paying it forward, and we've seen that in, like, commercials for different things trying to sell stuff because advertisement is manipulative <laughs> capitalism is evil official mm-hmm. quote line from this episode <laughs> yeah but uh it's kind of cool to see that like in an actual movie just like her being like she's a superhero of a different kind she's like a daily life superhero or super villain in the case of one <laughs> Colin Yon. Oh, to be fair, Colin Yon deserved that kind of terrorism. So at one point in the movie, obviously it's spoilers. I was going to so. say, like, <laughs> you, uh, every time on this podcast, this is not a very spoilery movie. There aren't, like, it, it, there's so much in the expression of this movie. Yeah, honestly, I could, like, get re- from watching it. I could read off a synopsis of this movie and you wouldn't even have half the experience also, of it. guess what? The guy and the girl get together at the end. Oh, my God. Jesus. Oh, God. I should have put it in, like, bells and whistles. <laughs> anyway, um, so this guy, Colin Yon, is the grocery stand manager, and he has an employee, Lucien, who is it is implied that he's, like, mentally challenged in some way, and so he's very mean and awful to him all the time, which is not fair because Lucien is a very sweet human being. And, and we find out that. he's actually very good at the job when he is well, not yeah. under the Colin Yon's thumb. Yeah, but, yeah, so Amelie sneaks into Colin Yon's apartment and plays a bunch of just, like, practical pranks on him, basically, like, switching the door handles on which either is, side. A, which is an evil, sinister genius <laughs> move. Uh, <laughs> like, switching the foot cream for toothpaste. I almost said foot paste. <laughs> which, which, again, would not work in capitalist America, because everything has different bright colors that tell you the <laughs> work. I, I did think it was kind of odd that the toothpaste and the foot cream are both just, like, white bottles with different colored letters on them or words. Um, look, who are we to judge French people and their labeling? Well, but anyway... You know Maybe if he didn't buy generic, he wouldn't have that problem. Exactly. really shouldn't go generic with foot cream. Yeah. But, yeah, so she also... She pours, like, a bunch of salt or sugar or something into his alcohol, 
And at one point, she switches all of the numbers in his phone, like the, <laughs> like the, the auto dial numbers, so that when he finally realize, like he freaks out and tries to call his mother, he gets like a psychiatric helpline. It's a uh, yeah, it's it's good. And so like for the most it's part, homo- it, it's like. It's like a, a more aggressive Home Alone, like going into someone else's house and planting traps <laughs> everywhere. Again. Except instead of uh, paint cans, they're emotional paint cans. <laughs> and he deserved it. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, let's see, what else did I want to talk about? Another good thing about this movie is that I feel like everybody has like some sort of weird collection. Like every character has a thing that's really special to them and like... It's a, like this goes back to the narrator describing every character's likes and dislikes, and like for instance, Amelie likes skipping stones, and so throughout the movie, there's all these shots of her like wherever she goes picking up like a good flat stone to skip somewhere, and like the whole crux of the movie is that she, I guess, bumps into Nino. They don't really meet until the very end of the movie. They meet <laughs> cute over and over again. Yeah, but um, so Nino collects like people's torn up photo booth photos like the failure photos and puts them into an album and Amelie finds the album after he drops it and so yeah everybody has like this like interesting thing that just belongs to them so Amelie collects like good like good sensations I guess because Mm -hmm. she likes dipping her hands into grain and like cracking creme brulee and stuff like that and you know collects his pictures the glass man does his painting every year Lucien is really like he loves vegetables, <laughs> and then there's uh, Georgette, oh, yeah, Georgette, who I guess you could say collects sicknesses, and she's a hypochondriac. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's a really, it's a nice, it's nice to have like these little references to what the characters like and don't like all throughout the film because it goes back to like we they gave you this like really simple, easy characterization of everybody, and then they stick with it throughout the film, and I really like that. And also kind of humanizes humanizes them, even though they have just like these one or two note things that could make them seem kind of a little more thin, but it makes them seem like almost more real because they have this weird thing about them. It's not just this generic, like, oh, she's the mean one and he is the <laughs> nice one. It's so funny because this whole movie, I feel like, is just like, in any other movie, that wouldn't work, but in this movie, it just does. And I I don't know. I think another good thing about it is there's this whole, like, throughout this whole idea of, like, the validation of your childhood imagination because in the beginning it says that like Amelie doesn't have any siblings and so she plays with like imaginary crocodile doctors and stuff like that and so like throughout we go back to that sort of imagination that she had as a child like she imagines herself on TV as like a saint passing away from exhaustion uh, her lamp comes to life to wonder if she's falling in love and stuff like that and it's not even just limited to her like it happens with Nino too one of his photographs like comes to life while he's asleep and tells him about Amelie ostensibly. Yeah. Which is his inner monologue. Like, does she like me? No, she doesn't like me. She has to like me. There's no way she likes me. <laughs> Which you can relate to, right? <laughs> Too personal. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Cutting that out. I'm actually not cutting anything out of this podcast, <laughs> but I will repeatedly reference the things I'm totally cutting out. Because <laughs> you are a sinister, mean ghost. Can we cut out my uh, alarm clock? No. No, dude, that is part of the fabric of this Am podcast. I you, as I... is this talking about the podcast. It's real meta right now, guys. Hi, podcast. How's it going? What's up? Super. Um, and hey, back to the actual movie. And that's part of the thing of it. It's like, it's like the style of the movie. It's so much its own. And... 
when I mentioned compared some of the camera work and stuff to Edgar Wright, you kind of like did a double take on me because it's not like the quick cutting of Edgar Wright, but it is the way I relate to it is it is very much its own. It, it does these really interesting, cool camera moments. Some of our, which get kind of close to the quick cutting of it in certain areas, but like these things that could seem like a. Just the filmmaker was like, hey, yo, I think we can do that. We should do that just because we can. Mm -hmm. But it's it you know, contributes to the overall uh, sense of the film and like these weird things happening. And I just related it to that because Edgar Wright movies are ones where all the, especially Scott Pilgrim, but in all of them, the camera stuff he does is it all contributes to the overall fabric of the movie and makes it into something more than just a movie. It makes it into like this world that is obviously can't be real. But it seems so real, and you want so badly for it to be real, and you just fall in love with it so much. And that's something that Juno does really well. Yeah, I think it also kind of reminds me of, like, in a way, like, Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. Because that's yeah. definitely the kind of, like, they all that's have, That's probably like, a, cl that's a closer comparison. Well, yeah, well, they have, like, this real cutesy feeling to them. And, like, you know that the world that they're existing in can't, like, necessarily be real, but it's just close enough that you feel like it could be and that you, that's where you want to live. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, like, every Wes Anderson movie, but specific, like, for instance, whenever I watch, um... Moonrise Kingdom. That's how I feel. I just yeah. like. I remember the first time I watched that movie. I was just like so happy at the end of it, and I was like, "This is the, like that's where I don't know where that is, but that's where I want to go, and that's, that's where I want to live." <laughs> definitely a movie that can relate pretty well to Amelie, and he's got like such a. His sense seems so. Wes Anderson seems so like European, anyways, and how he makes film, and so. Well, and I guess awkward. if you think about it, that's kind of like the. I guess maybe that's why it is like such. It has like such this universal appeal because. Uh, Specific, like working in video store and stuff like that, I can tell you that people lose their shit when they find out that movies are subtitled. Oh, like they want man. nothing to do with them. But every once in a while, there's a movie like this or like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where people are just, I don't know, they just decide to overlook that. And I think that since it has like that really whimsical, colorful, like fairy tale feeling, it has a universal appeal despite being like a very very French production. Listen, if it's gonna be in another language, it has to. It better make it obvious. Because if I swear to God, if I accidentally stumble on Spanish Spanish language with English subtitles, My, I will burn you to. One time, yeah, no, I legitimately had a customer one time who was like, "Why do you have these?" And I'm like, "Movies that aren't in English." She's like, "Yeah, why?" And I'm like, "Well, call the Oscars." I'm like, "Well, too. people." in countries that aren't America do make movies sometimes. <laughs> it was like, I don't know. That's We could do a whole podcast just about our shitty customers, I'm sure, Ooh, but I do... don't want to digress into that too much. Otherwise, it'll turn into what most of our personal conversations are, which is bitching about work. So, it should be noted, though, that were, there were Americans who appreciated this movie. As I said, a lot of them, they gave it $33 million in the box. I mean, I, I wish that I had been older than like nine in 2001 because I totally would have loved to have seen this in theaters. It probably plays in one of the art theaters around oh, us. Oh, I'm guaranteed there are art theaters around the country that play it. And it, should, and it, it, it was also nominated for five Academy Awards. It should, we should mention art direction and cinematography, which both make a lot of sense <laughs> as that's mostly what we've been celebrating this whole time. Uh, best sound... Again, it was that's... nominated for, but that seems that's one of those one that was oh they, now it's sound mixing and sound editing yeah um, but that kind of fits in with the art direction cinematography original screenplay and foreign language film yeah so and again, all things that make a lot of sense we have been praising um, the cinematography and the director and stuff a lot but I just want to I, I do want to point out that Audrey Tato is 
brilliant oh, in this movie. She's perfect. Like just the way, like just the way that because like Amelie doesn't talk very much, and so so much of it relies on her communicating with her expressions or with a lot of smiles. Yeah, just like in like every like every time she smiles, I would say unless it's like like it feels like every little smile or wink or whatever has a different meaning, mm-hmm. and like. I don't know. I feel like if it you... is incredible face acting that she's yeah. doing. It is incredible. <laughs> my favorite, uh, my favorite example of this is near the beginning. They talk about how she's had boyfriends, but it hasn't really worked out, and oh. they cut to they cut to a the picture. most famous GIF from the. And I know it's pronounced <laughs> GIF, but it's it's GIF. Goddamn GIF. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> but like the most famous GIF from this movie <laughs> is it cuts to this scene of her like having sex with her boyfriend and just like this like I, I don't even really know how to describe it just this like, ridiculous like childlike so, like can you believe this is happening it, right it, now exactly. oh my god it's, it's so funny and it's just yeah and it's just a brilliant use of that like great facial expression work that she does and like and not even just like with the smiling and stuff later uh, before the special effects step in and she turns into a literal puddle um, just like oh, which like I said to you during the movie, I don't understand how Tumblr, that is not all over Tumblr, <laughs> because that little sequence of her turning into a literal emotional puddle is basically everything on Tumblr ever. Same. Is it too on the nose? Is that why? It's it's too on the nose. Maybe. I but don't know. Tumblr's not afraid of being on the nose. I don't know. I can't tell you. You know, we gotta get, I think we gotta like get them together. I think their audience is maybe just a little bit too young. Ugh, we need to get Amelie and Tumblr together. We're gonna do it. But anyway, <laughs> so just like, but anyway, this look of utter dejection before that happens, like, you just like, you just like feel crushed for her in a way mm-hmm. because it's like, you like you know that Nino isn't really going out with the other girl or whatever, but you still just can't help but feel like that soul-crushing sadness. we've also all had that where we overreact to this little thing where we're like, Oh my god, what if that means no? I think that's a good thing about Amelie is that she does spend so much of the movie overreacting to things, mm-hmm. but in like a, Again, a completely human. Yeah. <laughs> but like in a completely human and like. I guess I wouldn't say realistic, but like relatable. Very way. relatable. Yeah, my favorite. Another another thing that I really like is when so she's her, like our not not her id, but like she is like the expression, like a certain expression of ourselves, where she's yeah. able to do and react to things in a certain way, where we're like, that is so me. I would say yeah, I would say like the irrational like part of your brain that thinks too much about everything, and I think I don't know. I really like. The, just the way that she interacts with other people, even if it's mostly nonverbal, like you can tell that like pretty much everybody that interacts with her cares about her and she cares about them. Like even what's her what's her name? Uh, Gina's ex boyfriend is a total asshole. Oh yes. And but like even then, she still tries to do something nice and hook him up with Georgette, which doesn't really work out in the end. But she <laughs> although tried. it does lead to a uh, certain sequence, Joseph. <laughs> Joseph, thank uh, you. <laughs> it does lead to a certain sequence of bathroom sex that is uh, loud and funny, but also really adorable because you're like, I only did it. Oh god. <laughs> yeah. And also another thing, another thing where like. You would not get that so much in an American movie. No. It would be more gross, whereas in that certain instance, it's kind of supposed to be this beautiful thing, I feel. Well, I mean, and it is. It's just like two people just coming together, I guess, in the very literal sense of the word. Oh, go. Get it. Get out. Get out. Yeah. Oh, what else? Oh, so um, another fun thing about this Wait, before we move on, I do want to say it's also impressive how amazing she is in this movie because she'd only just started acting. Um, he discuss- apparently, and this is this is from Wikipedia, so this isn't heavy research this far, but um, 
the director discovered her via a poster for the movie Venus Beauty Institute, which was her debut film. And just like from the poster for that movie, which I can get because like she's a strikingly beautiful woman. Well, like. yes, yeah, like, but also in a certain way that works for this movie very well, obviously, because mm-hmm. she does again a lot of face acting, and like she was the first one to audition for the role and everything. But it was just, it was just fascinating finding that tidbit that like he found like she went from on a poster for her debut movie to getting cast in this movie that then became one of the greatest international sensations of. Oh, film time. <laughs> Which is, like, again, very well-deserved. Audrey Tato is an amazing actress, and I feel like whatever she's in, she shines in. Like, The Da Vinci Code. Insta classic. She is the best part of that movie, like, not gonna <laughs> lie. I haven't seen it since, ooh, probably when I was still into reading Dan Brown novels. <sighs> too bad it's not on the 250. Like, but you know what? I'm just saying. Every other Tom Hanks movie is on the 250, so we will get I'm just saying, while we're on that topic, Tom Hanks was grossly miscast in that movie, and that's another thing I'm still not over. Well, if there's <laughs> one thing this podcast is not afraid of, it's tangents. <laughs> this is true. But yeah, um, let's see. Back to what I was saying about her like interacting with people. I think one of the best parts of the movie is her interacting with her father, who is kind of just like, he's like there, but he's not really there, mm-hmm. and he's not really like living his life to the best, so she steals his garden gnome. Well, he's just not over his wife's death. Well, but he though. was distant before that, too. No, that's right, that's right. Yes. But yeah, so she steals his garden gnome and sends it with her friend and takes pictures of it like all over the world, which I would like to point out is not original to this movie, but Travelocity fucking stole the gnome idea from this movie, and they refuse to admit it, but it's true. That's what happened. Does <laughs> Travelocity even stole a thing? Ooh. I don't know. But it's unfortunate, as big as this movie was, at least in here, the gnome traveling all over the world thing is more is synonymous with Travelocity and now with Amelie. Well, I, think, I don't know. I think that the Which gnome is traveling is a really small part of the movie. It just kind of lends but to is, the overall... But it is so delightful. It, I mean, it is. It yeah. is great. Well, and it's good it's a great it's... idea. I understand why they took it. Yeah, it's nice. And then at the end, like, he goes off into the world and starts traveling or whatever. And so... Again, and that's that's another nice thing about the end of the movie is that it wraps it all up by showing you that like everybody kind of got their shit together and is having a good time, including Nino and Amelie, who finally, after fake meeting like five hundred fucking times, come face to face. Like because not, movie. Yeah, and I mean it's not like it's not like a frustrating experience at all. It's mostly just like you're just like really rooting for them the whole time, and so it's really satisfying when they finally just like literally run smack dab into each other. And are forced to like confront this very real thing that's happening to and them. It's also a very beautiful moment because the music very uh, overtly just drops out, and it's total like they're meeting and they're finally getting together. It is totally silent. And yeah, and it's this nice, it's this nice scene where they don't talk to each other. They just kind of do like this cute, like they kiss each other each on the eyelids and on like the cheek and the neck. And it's like she's planned this for a very long time. <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, he does it too, and I think yeah. that it's. I think it shows that, like, even though they maybe don't really know each other yet, they understand each other in a way, uh, like in a way that only these like two strange people with quirky collections can it's understand very each other. Of like the, the idea of falling in love at first sight, or like the way that you can know someone without actually like without really knowing them. Yeah. And. uh kind of gets away with the whole movie idea of and they lived happily ever after a little better than well and it goes again to show that like so many of these like really so many of the top 250 as we were we were looking through when we were trying to pick like a first movie and we'll we'll get to that in later because we have stats later yeah there's just like so many like grim 
crime dramas. Crime dramas. Just crime dramas. Sometimes, sometimes, goddamn Tom Hanks. Also, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. But uh, also, and occasionally, superhero crime dramas. Yeah, but like, what it is is like, I think it's nice to remember that like these nice, cute, happy stories can also be something to be lauded and be like celebrated because I think so much and of the time... And they're just as worthy as those heavy Yeah, movies. I think so much of the time people... It's, and this happens <laughs> with the Oscars every year where like it's all like biopics and dramas and mm. blah. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes like those are... And, and not to like trash movies like that because I like a lot of movies like that, but it's nice to remember that like everything doesn't have to be doom and gloom for it to be like worthwhile filmmaking. Or in the case of last year... British biopics. Jesus. Okay, last year's Oscars, and I don't know if it would have been as disappointing if the year before that we hadn't were been so stellar. Then, so we got to get that out now. <laughs> the year before was so stellar, mm-hmm. and just like last year was just like damn. less than interstellar. <sighs> I mean, it's not like I didn't like a decent amount of those movies because I did, but at the same time, I don't need five hundred white British biopics every year to win a million awards. But. but Cumberbatch. Yes, Cumberbatch. We'll, we'll get, we don't want to get... Okay, I don't want to alienate every person listening from Tumblr or whatever, but I have a lot of specific feelings about Benedict Cumberbatch, and not many of them are positive. Foreshadowing. <laughs> so anyway, my point being, like, it's nice to have a movie that just makes you feel good, be celebrated for doing just that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am not... I remember uh, they, there was whatever year that Fifty Fifty came out. I thought I honestly thought it was one of the best movies to come out that year, and it just never had a chance. And then that's just indicative, like not specifically just that movie, but it's indicative of a greater problem. Where we're like, it is on television too with the antihero, the white male antihero. It's either like Breaking you know. Bad, <laughs> which is a great show, but it's just like, man, not every show has to be like. I gotta kill someone. Well, it's like with the whole this this else. issue with Hollywood is it's like it's either like super blockbuster sequel world or serious reserved Oscar bait, and it's like I feel like a movie like if Amelie came out today, I can't say I don't think it would I don't know if it would do as well because oh, like I, I don't think people would lose their minds now the way they did that at least not or maybe I don't know we, we're not familiar enough with other cultures yeah to know if like how likely it would be for France to lose its mind again I don't think Americans American, are fairly no. impressed no. America very rarely like America might in small pockets lose its mind over something but for the most part it's like, I guess Birdman's the closest example of something that got close to that. Yeah, and even Birdman still has that really dark undercurrent. And um, also had trailers that made it seem way more blockbustery than it actually is. Well, that's the kind of the satire of the movie, though. Yeah. Like, it made sense. I kind of like movies like that where they, like, kind of mislead you. Like, for instance, Spring oh. Breakers. Uh, if you saw a trailer for the movie Spring Breakers, you would probably be prepared for, like, Party, Spring Break, former Disney girls, yada, yada. If you actually watch the movie Spring Breakers, you're probably going to be really fucking confused. Or which... the first Magic Mike, which I haven't seen, but it's a Soderbergh movie, and I've heard some things about how it's less Magic Mike XXL. You know, I've actually seen a lot of positive things from, like, women about Magic Mike No, XXL. no, I've heard great things about XXL. It's just, um, it's a different kind of great, where the first one's more... Technically a great film. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's also much more white and male. Or, like, white and straight. 
I'm not but, sure that I would ever watch either Magic Mike movie, but it makes me happy to know that they're out there doing good work. Yeah, <laughs> and, and reminds that Channing Tatum, he might actually be a good person. He actually you know, certainly seems like a great he, person. I think he is a great person. He like, seems great. Every, like, ever I love since, Channing Tatum. Actually, you know since, what? I love Channing Tatum. Let's just be real. <laughs> ever since I saw 21 Channing, Jump Street. Channing, are you out there? If you want to sponsor us, uh, we'd love to have you on. No, you, we get, you don't even have to sponsor. Like, you can I just, just come. Can I send you, like, a, a letter or... <laughs> <laughs> and on the other end of that trailer spectrum is like pretty much every other trailer, but mo- you know what? I've, I've been grinding this gear for a while, and I just want to get it on record. <laughs> the trailer for Southpaw is the biggest piece of shit in this, on this universe because it. it gives away... Listen, I haven't seen Southpaw, so it could be misleading us for a very uh, different kind of finish. Like, it's got, it's got a twist. It's going to be crazy, but what my twist? guess is it's mostly one of those movies, trailers that gives away everything that ever happens in the movie, and so now I'm like... Yo, you had me at, it's like Nightcrawler, but he's a boxer instead. It was very troubling. <laughs> well, and that's another thing that's like the trailer for It Follows is a terrible trailer. Oh, I know, because I have to watch it every four hours and at work. Love it Follows. It's so good. It's such a bad trailer, though. It just <sighs> makes it, like, first of all, there's like voiceover stuff that isn't even in the movie. And like, the I don't know, just like so many things like out of order. And in, like, I just, I don't know who that's puts why, together that trailer, but I don't like them. That's why it needs us. This, that's why video stores need us. The artsy douchebags to be when people <laughs> say ex machina was so dumb i can shake that person and be like you are an ignorant child which didn't actually happen except in my mind but i guess we're getting away from amelie because we already <laughs> talked about a lot of things we loved about amelie yeah it's i, I will say i did there, it like it's almost universally positive but i did find some people uh some critics who at the time were a little critical of like many uh, in like in quirky indie American movies were critical of its lack of diversity because certain people specifically were like it presents a very uh, white and French version of French that is uh, kind of d- excludes all immigrants or people of color and all that which, which is not something I thought of watching the movie but after as, reading it as idiot white people we probably would not yeah. think of it right off the bat but yeah that's definitely and, and a the lot director's of... defense of it. Because there was no inter- no the internet wasn't what it is now at the time. Oh god! It was kind of just like you're done with bad taste. Which if they tried uh, that now would be much more disappointing. I mean, it's disappointing still. Yeah, but it's easy to over. It's easy to miss that fact when looking back at the movie that came out in two thousand one. Exactly. So like I, I just did want to mention that there is criticism, valid criticism to be made of this movie. Well, yeah, and I think that happens with every movie. Like even if it's a really good movie that you like, there's going to be things about it that aren't great. And that's a thing that's hard, like easy for us to miss is when it comes from another country too. Yeah, and I think that's a good, a, an important takeaway too is that you can love something and you still have to be critical of it. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people don't really realize. Like, it's like will, an all or nothing. I mean, pretty uh, very clearly, we are going to let this film into our vault, castle vault. Of- <laughs> Good yes. movies. We let this film in, but uh, we just also were like, yo, hey, if you could just like, you know, maybe just be a little more inclusive on when you, that'd be cool. Exactly. <laughs> just uh, knowing that the movie, while great, is a there, there is a problem to be had, but that doesn't mean you can't still feel all the emotions. Exactly. But so, fun fact: we're actually recording this podcast in the back room of a coffee oh, shop, and I. <laughs> Tell you how the sausage is made. It's super fun. We did not agree to this. this we could have just. Ra- I was going to wrap it up. I was going to wrap it up. I just think it's good to be like transparent <sighs> about how great and professional we are. Oh, um, gosh. Yeah, well, I, and then you set your phone on the table, and there's a little click, oh click there, goodness. and oh, 
Just letting you guys know, I have to go to work in 15 minutes. I was going to wrap it up very nicely. I was just going to be like, and that sums up our discussion of Amelie. Thanks for listening Look, with us today. We're just doing uh, some personal And now flavor. she's talking about, I can't even cut, I can't even cut this. Like, although we discussed, I wasn't going to cut it. <laughs> but that does wrap up our discussion of Amelie. And before we go, we're going to have this recurring thing where I have a bit of, we're putting together certain statistics, not just about the IMDb 250, which, uh, but also about other lists, whether it be the uh, aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic or like more critical lists like the sight and sound and things like that and just taking a look at what movies are considered great and what is kind of a recurring theme with them and it can also be indicative of the film industry in general and also we're going to have a favorite bit of trivia every week. So Kayla, what is your Amelie trivia? All right, so I was going to do a theme song for this section but we'll just have to skip that for next oh time. Oh gosh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get a theme song. Uh, my fun fact of the week is that Audrey Tato does not actually know how to skip stones, so every time you see her skipping a stone in the movie, it's actually special effects, which is hilarious because there's like six or seven scenes where she skips stones. And also, like, I haven't skipped stones in a long time, but like, I used to do it all the time. To be fair, I don't know how to skip stones either, so I can't really judge her. It's really they, hard for they me. They also gave her such good skipping stones, but yeah. And my less than fun fact is in the week is through the, uh, the top 150 of the IMDb 250, there are only two female directors in that whole 150 movies. And they are both co-directors. Uh, one is Lana Wachowski, uh, the first Matrix, which is up at number 19. And the co-director of City of God, which is a foreign film at number 22. That is uh, Katya Lund. But yeah, two female directors, both co-directors, in the entire top 150. The rest is just dudes, dude. And just if you want to get Tarantinos and Spielbergs and Coppolas, we're all great, but dudes. And it's like, and also if you want to get real technical, I want to say Lana Wachowski is possibly the only transgender director in the top. That's 250. true. To be fair, they. So like, not only are we failing at one diversity, we're probably failing at two right off the bat. Yeah. Well. The, and we haven't even gotten to the racial diversity yet. Uh, but we'll so get much there. Whiteness. <laughs> we have a lot of movies to talk about. We have a lot of stats to give out. And then before we go, a related recommendation. Kayla, do you have one ready? Uh, yeah, I would say probably if you're looking for something similar to Amelie, I'm going to go ahead and plug my favorite movie of all time, uh, The Brothers Bloom. It is directed by Ryan Johnson, who will be directing a Star Wars movie, so you should catch up on all of his and older things. And he's just an incredible director. He, he's phenomenal, yeah. He's... And so I just want to say that The Brothers Bloom is kind of like a con man movie starring Adrian Brody before he made Terrible Life Choices, and Mark Ruffalo hey. and Rachel Weisz. Emmy nominated. <laughs> Emmy nominated for Houdini. I also have many feelings about Adrian Brody's career. We'll talk about that later. But anyway. Um, the pianist is on the list. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, it's a con man movie about these two brothers who grow up um, as it, con men, and they're doing one last job involving Rachel Weisz's character, and it's just got that super fun, vibrant, colorful, uh, great score, just such an awesome movie. I really can't say enough good things about it. And it is streaming for free on Hulu Plus. You can also rent it through Amazon, Apple, all the uh, standard, you know. Providers, but if it is streaming for free on Hulu Plus. If you <laughs> and if you it. live near a video store, somehow magically you can go there and get it. We possibly have it at our store, do we not? Yes, it's in my employee Come section. Come visit us in the Metro Detroit area of Michigan. <laughs> also, I, uh, my pick is not totally to the feel of it, but uh, one of the movies that has already been mentioned on this podcast as one of the top performing 
foreign movies in the United States, Pan's Labyrinth. By now, uh, by directed by Guillermo del Toro, who is one of the greatest, Superstar. just like not even considering international directors, like one of the most original, fun directors we have. Uh, this is an, a movie about a young girl, and in uh, I have not seen it in a while, but it is very fantastical. It's got elements of horror to it. it takes place during wartime, and she retreats to this fantasy world, kind of. It's just a gorgeous film. The creature in it is one of the probably one of the more famous creatures, created, horror creatures created in the last couple of years, I would say, yeah. last decade or so, with the eyes and the hands and all that. But it's another uh, <laughs> another subtitled gorgeous film with some fantastical elements, just in, put in a different context. And I believe they were more romantic, comedic, fantasy. Fan, this one's fantastic more all-out terrifying nightmare fuel. Yeah, terrifying nightmare fuel. But you know what? Sometimes <laughs> you start with Pan's Labyrinth and then you can switch back on Amelie and be like, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and that is not, unfortunately, it's not streaming anywhere, but you can rent it through Amazon and Google Play and all those various things. But that is the first episode of Let the Right Films In. Thank yeah. you so much for listening. We'll be back. Uh, we're planning on re- releasing not totally weekly, but four episodes a month on a specific day. Uh, we will get that nailed down. You can follow us at <laughs> LTRFI, let the right films in, RT- LTRFI pod, at, uh, tw- on Twitter. You can email us at LTRFI pod at gmail.com. And we also have a Tumblr that we're going to be getting up called let the right films in. Tumblr.com. And next time we will be talking about. Batfleck in Born <laughs> in their debut or well close enough their breakout film Good Will Hunting yes it's gonna be great I've never seen Good Will Hunting so that should be an interesting experience for it will also be kind of sad because Robin Williams is no longer with us but Batfleck <laughs> young Batfleck yes <laughs> anyways we'll be talking about that next time thanks for listening